Welcome to Publishing Gribble, the podcast that breaks the rules and helps you kickstart your career as a successful nonfiction author and entrepreneur. I'm your host, Melina Benson. Launching an online course and growing your online teaching business comes with a need to learn about legal aspects and how to protect your work and how to limit risks in your business. In this interview with Nasira Haig, a U.S. attorney specializing in legal matters for course creators, we dive into a number of aspects relevant to course creators. If you listened to the previous episode about uh, legal matters for nonfiction authors, you already know Nasira. Uh, but I, do, I just want to repeat who she is, right? Nasira counsels US and international clients on obtaining and protecting trademarks and copyrights, branding strategies, IP portfolio management, trade secrets, data protection, GDPR and US privacy law compliance and other commercial matters. She's your gal if you're a course creator. In this interview with Nasira, we dive into a number of legal aspects relevant specifically for course creators. And a quick disclaimer, to be sure about the legal aspects of your own business specifically, you, uh, I encourage you that you seek your own legal counseling. I'm not an attorney. Nasira is speaking in general. Go find your own attorney. But this interview is definitely a start. Okay? So amongst the other things we talk about, Uh, intellectual property, privacy policies, and which contracts you need to have in place in your business. And my friend, this information is relevant no matter what level your business is at. And even if you don't know what these words mean, that's just one more reason to stay on the line and let Nasira educate you. Let's dive in. Welcome to the show, Nasira. Thank you so much, Malene. It's such an honor to be here with you. I'm super happy that we finally made it happen. It's been uh, it's been difficult, <laughs> but but we managed. I know that's so, the unfortunate uh, scenario of ha- of being in two different time zones, but uh, but we did make it happen. Now we're we're talking, so I'm very happy about that. Me too. So first, I would like to ask you, is it so that my creative work is protected already when I create it, or how is that? That's such a great question, Malene. And honestly, the answer very much depends on where you are in the world. Um, Copyright laws, there is an international uh, recognition and treaties related to copyrights, but still intellectual property is very territorial. But generally speaking, the universal understanding of how copyrights are created is pretty much as soon as you express your idea in in a tangible form, a copyright is created. So you don't really have to take any additional steps in creating a copyright. As long as it's in your head and it's an idea, that's not copyrightable. As soon as you've put it down in writing, it's in some tangible form, a copyright is created. By a tangible form, it means that something that can, that you can point to and say it's recorded somewhere. So even if you pick up your phone and do a voice note, 
Um, in some countries, even that would be considered copyrighted. So it depends on each country. And the other important thing to remember is that the United States has its unique copyright system, which is a little different from the rest of the world. So for the, for, for the U.S., copyrights are also created automatically as soon as you take your idea and turn it into a tangible form. But in the U.S., you have to take it a step further. If you want certain benefits uh, and if you want people to stop copying you, you want uh, to enforce your rights, all of that is made much easier when you have a registration for your copyrightable work. When you have that registration, it is assumed that you are the rightful owner of that copyright. You don't have to prove your ownership per se. It's already assumed. But in the rest of the world, um, and I, I could be wrong, maybe there's another country that has a system like this. But as far as I know, in the rest of the world, you're not really required to take that additional step and register your copyrights. It's pretty much done as soon as you're, you put it in some tangible form. In the U.S., um, the way the registration system works, it's fairly straightforward. You can do it online. Um, you can go to copyright.gov, and there is an electronic uh, portal through which you can start your application. And in the application, they ask for certain important pieces of information, which is also very, very important for um, anyone who's creating something, including course creators, including uh, writers who are writing books, or anytime you're creating something, there are certain things you have to be very, very mindful of. Anytime someone is providing original work, or original content, and it's part of your project, they also have copyrights. They own the rights to that work. Even if you pay them for it, they still own the rights. So one of the things when you start a copyright application is that they'll ask in the application, who are the owners? Who are the authors who prepared this work? And you could have more than one person. So it could be you. It could, it could be your graphic designer. It could be other people who are involved in the project. And if you don't have a copyright transfer agreement with them where once they finish the work, they transferred all their rights over to you. You have to account for them in the application and you have to give them credit. And if, if the rights are not properly transferred, they own copyrights in your work now. So if you go ahead and register that work, uh, you have to, first of all, give them credit, mention their names in the application. Um, and then whenever you sell copies of your work, they're in a way entitled to royalty because they hold the copyrights. So when you are thinking about registering your work for protection, this is one of the things that you have to be very, very careful about is understanding who actually owns rights to your work. And if there are multiple people who are involved in the project, do you have written contracts from them where they're telling you, okay, once I'm done with the project, I am done. I'm not claiming anything extra. You own all the rights now. And have they transferred their rights over to you? If they have not transferred their rights, um, then it's, it's a bit complicated because now you have multiple copyright owners. When you are hiring people, at that point in time, you send them the contract, they understand what they're getting into, that they're not going to own any rights to their work. They're transferring it to you. And once that is done, your work is complete. Your work is final. You can then take that work, submit it to the copyright office. And then once it's registered, all the rights belong to you. Okay, so uh, two questions in terms of uh, 
the process and the creation process. How early on can you actually start protecting it? And the second question is, what if I then create a second edition or I add more content to my online course? Would I then have to renew my application? Uh, great questions. Uh, so if you add more content to your online course, um, then yeah, you you would need to update your registration. So that is that is a given. And if it's if it's a substantial change, because if it is not a substantial change, then I wouldn't honestly worry about it because copyrights protect derivatives. So which means is um, you as a creator have the right to create derivatives out of your copyrighted work. So if you already have an original work and you want to make minor changes, minor updates to it, that's fine. Um, I, I also like to think from a business perspective that as, as if I am speaking just as an attorney, my answer to you would be, yes, you do. As soon as you update something, as soon as you change something, if you want to be absolutely safe, you need to submit a, a, an updated copyright application. From the point of view of a business owner, I would say that it's not as critical as if you were making substantial changes. If it is a minor change, like you took out a paragraph, for example, that you don't want that in, in, your, in your course anymore, or you deleted a module, and now your module, instead of 10, it has eight modules, um, I don't think you need to update it. However, if the changes are substantial, that you're adding a whole new module and there's a lot of new content, a lot of new principles being taught, then the answer is yes. I think you should go forward and update that registration. Um, and then uh, for your other question, how early can you start? From a legal perspective, there is no bar. If you want to submit, like you, for example, you've done one module and one module is ready and you want to share it with your audience, um, there's nothing stopping you from submitting just that one module. You could submit that one module and get a copyright registration on that. And then when your other modules come up, you can do that per module as well. Um, but if you are going to wait a little and then see that, okay, if I finish up the whole thing, maybe I'll make changes to module one once module eight is done. If you want to do that and you have a set timeline, like, okay, within the next three months, this is going to be done. Then I would say wait for three months and then submit it because then it can all go as part of one application. So it saves you time and saves you money. That's amazing information. Thank you for that. Let's see. Privacy policies. <laughs> in, uh, in Europe, it's GDPR, I think. Is it CCPA in the US or is that something else? Yes, you're you're correct. It's CCP. Um, that's California's privacy law, uh, but uh, the U.S. doesn't have really a federal privacy law like that yet. Like uh, EU has GDPR. In America, we don't we don't have a federal one yet, like that comprehensive. But um, California came up with CCPA, which is pretty much the model that the rest of the country is following. And what you mentioned is so important. Privacy policies, a lot of people don't know this, but unlike any other contracts, privacy policies are actually mandatory by law. So it doesn't matter if you want a privacy policy or not, but if you don't have a privacy policy on your website and you're collecting data, uh, data that helps you identify a person. So it could be data such as an email address, 
uh, name, uh, shipping address. If people are, say, are ordering your books online, to buying directly from your website, and you have to ship the book to them, when you're collecting that shipping address, that name, that credit card information, this is all very sensitive data that you're collecting. And as soon as you do that, you have an obligation to let your users or your customers know how and why are you collecting their data? What are you going to do with it? How do you use it in your business? How do you store it? And these are the questions that are answered by a privacy policy. And uh, you're right, Malin. So in the European Union, there's the GDPR, which is the global standard for uh, data privacy laws. It's based off of the GDPR that the US privacy laws also developed. Um, and also an important thing to note is you don't have to be in the EU to follow GDPR as long as a European national can give you their data, you fall under the GDPR um, umbrella, so to speak. So if someone say if someone from Finland is accessing your website and giving you their information, you could be sitting in Miami, Florida and you have no idea this person is from Finland, that they're from the European Union, you still have to not comply with GDPR. And obviously, um, if you're just starting out, if you're a very small business, the privacy policy laws are not going to be that strict for you. But you still need to have a privacy policy on your website to let people know what is going on with their data. And if they want you to stop sending them emails, or if they want to opt out of your list, or if they you know, want you to move their data to another organization, another company, how can all of that happen? So these are the things that a privacy policy is supposed to address. Yeah, so this is both information that the website visitor gives, like actively provide this data, but it's also cookies, right? It's it's yeah, also so the fact, the data that I was in fact visiting your website. Uh, so yeah. that's, that's a whole different category yeah, absolutely absolutely so you're absolutely right uh you need to disclose cookies as well like how are cookies placed on people like i'm sorry not people but basically there's uh when you visit a website there's like pixels and cookies that are there and they are also there to track your movement and in your privacy policy so you could do it two ways some companies have their cookie policy uh, included within their privacy policy, there will be a section which says cookies, and it'll have the details. And other companies, they like to be um, a little more comprehensive with their cookie policy, so they'll have a separate cookie policy. Uh, but yeah, cookies are also important to mention uh, to people that if you know if they want to avoid getting cooped, if that's a word, <laughs> but if they yeah. want out of something or they want to refresh their uh, even browser and get rid of any kind of pixels or anything that's that's placed on their um, uh, on their account when when they are visiting your website then they can do so okay I guess that's a, it's a that's a free part podcast episode <laughs> to dive into all the details of the GDPR and uh, yeah. similar. <laughs> So I want to I want to before we wrap up I want to also touch upon um, contracts and I'm thinking especially two types of contracts you already mentioned a, f- a few or uh, some kind of uh, transferal agreements and such things but also uh, in terms of building a team 
and onboarding customers. Uh, I think those might be the most relevant for cost creators. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, you're absolutely right that contracts are so, so important, especially if you are um, a course creator, because there's going to be multiple avenues in which you're building legal relationships with people. And so it's good when you have things in writing. So, for example, we already discussed a non-disclosure agreement. An NDA is one of the most powerful contracts you can really have in your toolbox um, because you can use it with pretty much anyone who you're going to give access to and they have access to like personal information or sensitive information or confidential information. Those kinds of sensitive situations is when you want to use an NDA, when you don't want information to get leaked. So that is one scenario. Um, the other contract that you need when you're building a team, it uh, and it depends on what kind of team you're building. So if you have uh, employees who are employed full-time or part-time and they are W-2, like you are withholding their taxes and you're doing all of that, then you don't need this particular contract that I'm talking about, that I'm going to talk about now. But uh, as most small business owners and most online business owners, you build a team with freelancers. So you're going to hire your VA who's probably in another country or you're going to hire an agency, a marketing agency, whatever it, whatever it is, um, they're going to be freelancers. They're, they're going to be independent contractors that essentially have their own business. And for those kinds of team building uh, ventures, you want to be mindful that you want to have a written contract with your team members. So an independent contractor agreement is what you need. Um, and this independent contractor agreement should be custom tailored to your business. And I don't mean that it needs to have every specification of your business, but even when you are using templates, and I recommend uh, small business owners to start with contract templates because they're easy to use as, as long as they're prepared by an attorney, not the random ones on Google, but if they're attorney prepared, they're actually easy to use. And most often the instructions that they come with are, are very, very easy to follow. So you can put in your own information and make it your own. And you could probably even tweak some sections of it so it's more tailored to your business. Um, and so that is the contract you need when you're building a team. And that contract will have key details like what's my rate of pay? Um, and when is the project deadline? What are my work hours if there's going to be any expectations of specific work hours? Um, when will invoices be submitted? How will they be paid? And if there's a dispute on the invoice, how is that going to be resolved? And also, going back to the IP section, super important is to have um, an IP section in that independent contractor agreement, which will say that any work that you do for me um, will be transferred over to me. The rights will be transferred over to the company, that you will not own the rights. And also, another important part is to have a provision in the contract that says you are also letting me know and you are agreeing that any work that you do for me will not violate someone else's IP rights. So they shouldn't be using another client's work and then taking it and then putting it into your work without changing it up. So it looks identical to someone else's work. So these are some important provisions that can go into the team building contract, which is the independent contractor agreement. And they're obviously for your for your clients or for your customers for buying your course, you want to have a terms of enrollment. 
And that terms of enrollment is critical. That's your contract with the people that are buying from you. So they understand, okay, this is the amount that I'm paying. Is there a payment plan? What comes with the course? What am I getting access to? Am I getting access to just a recorded course? Is there going to be live coaching? Is there going to be group coaching? All of those details, including also super important refunds, cancellations. Can people get a refund when they purchase your course? And if your answer is no, I don't want to give refunds, then say that on the contract that there's no refund because there's no law against it. You, it's not like you're forced to give people refunds if you don't want to give them refunds, but you definitely need to have that in your contract so people are not confused. Um, also, if you can want this, to get this refund, be, yeah. can, I'm sorry, can this be in a general set of terms and conditions on the website or do you actually need to forward a specific contract to each client? I'm thinking a uh, Uh, and on a digital course launch with a thousand stu- new students, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do I need to send a thousand contracts? <laughs> no, it it should be on your website, and people should uh, be able to click. You know, like there's a box. Sometimes you'll see next to uh, terms of uh, terms of service or terms and conditions. There'll be a little box which says, "I have read and I agree to the terms and conditions." So yes. that's what you want to do. You, if you're If you don't have a proper website and you are still small and you're dealing with about five to 10 clients, then yeah, you can send them your contract via email and have them sign it. But if it's going to be a proper launch, then just have it up on your website. That's that's enough. And they understand when they're buying from you that they have to agree to those terms. Okay, last question. You mentioned uh, when hiring freelancers. Yeah. Uh, and everything was perfectly explained, but in my head was that many of uh, many of the course creators that I know also hire through, for example, Upwork, uh, like a third party platform where you agree to the conditions of and the terms of service of the platform. Uh, do you have knowledge about whether is that enough, or do you still need those documents in place? Yeah, so it very much depends on the platform. Like I know for uh, Fiverr, for example, um, on Fiverr, they have an independent contractor agreement embedded. So when you are hiring someone on Fiverr, you will see that they have a contract which actually accounts for all of that, that any work that they do, the IP is transferred over to you. So In those situations, you don't really need it unless you want something additional that is not covered in the Fiverr contract itself. Then you can, yes, create a separate contract and by all means, send it to your freelancer and they can sign and send it back to you. But if everything that you want is already covered in the contract, then then no need. That's sufficient. Yeah. So the good advice here is to check on the specific platform <laughs> what's actually included. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> Okay, is there anything that I should have asked you that I haven't? <laughs> um, no, I think we covered a lot. And uh, for courses, I would encourage um, anyone, any course creator, to think of your course as an asset and to think of how you can monetize that asset in many different ways, not just with sales of course directly, but like, can you turn that course into something else? Can that course... Um, if the course is popular enough, can you come up with a book based on that course? Or can you enter into licensing deals? 
Can you do collaborations with other course creators so you can both use each other's audiences and do joint promos? And all of that is possible when you have your IP rights sorted. So it kind of goes back to the basics. And even with courses, I'd encourage people to think about three major things because online courses are they're on in the digital landscape and it's all about intellectual property. Your entire course is your intellectual property. There is really nothing else other than IP there. So you want to be mindful of the name that you come out for your course so you can get trademarks for it. So if people are creating knockoff versions of your course, if your course is a huge success, um, then you don't want people to just take the name of that course and start creating knockoff versions. Then it'll confuse your audience and it'll confuse people into thinking that, oh, what is this low-grade course that this, uh, this person came out with? You don't want that to happen. So think about that. Think about the brand aspect of your course. Get your trademark sorted. Once your course is finalized, submit it for copyrights if you are going to be U.S.-based or your customers are here in the U.S. And then third and very important, have your contracts in place. There's a couple of contracts for course creators that you absolutely need. Privacy policy, uh, terms of enrollment. And also, if you're building a team, you need an independent contractor agreement. That's perfect. Thank you so much. I'm going to link to uh, different resources uh, in uh, the show notes so that the listeners can go check you out. I, I It's on my bucket list to go to Copenhagen. So if I'm there, yeah, I'll, I'll hit you up. I'll host you, gladly. Oh, <laughs> okay. Thank you for now. Thank you so much, Malene. I hope you have a lovely rest of the week. <laughs> you too. <laughs> Thanks. That's it, folks. I hope you find that valuable. I'm happy to hear about all of your questions that this leaves you with, so we might bring Nisaira back some other time or some other attorney that can help elaborate on some, on some of those issues. So you are uh, welcome to send me an email at mb at malinabenson.com and I am happy to receive your, inform- your input for other topics and your questions for this topic. A quick reminder before we end that you seek your own counseling about the legal aspects of your own business specifically, right? And also, I want to make you aware again of the other half of this interview with Nasira, which was more in-depth for non-fiction authors. Go listen to The Marketing Made Human, episode number 36, 36 that is, to learn even more about copyrights and what you should and should not do as an author. Talk to you soon, my friend. Bye for now.